If you enjoy the conversations in this podcast and want to help us continue to provide great content for the community, please consider supporting our work by becoming a friend of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the JCC. As a friend, you'll receive insider access to artists and VIP events, special passes to arts programs, and unique gifts from the JCC. To learn more, please visit jccmanhattan.org slash friends hyphen AI. Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. This week, it's a discussion between Nora Efron and Abigail Pogrebin, part of Abby's ongoing series at the JCC, What Everyone's Talking About. Nora Efron was, as the New York Times put it in their 2012 obituary, a journalist, a blogger, an essayist, a novelist, a playwright, an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, and a movie director, a rarity in a film industry whose directorial ranks were and continue to be dominated by men. Her screenplays include Silkwood, Heartburn, and When Harry Met Sally. Her directorial successes include Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, and Julie and Julia. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience on February 16th, 2011. So I didn't know she was going to be wearing black, but here she is. Good bet on it, though. Yeah. Um, let's start with the, with the title. What is sort of the source of it, the inspiration for it, and obviously goes to the theme of the book in many ways. Well, I, I remember nothing. And I say it, I don't say it that much now. What I say is, I hate this. Because, you know, the things that fall from your head when you're in the middle of a sentence. You know, I thought today, I'll never have my own radio show because I will just spend it going, <laughs> trying to think of it. And it's not a joke. I mean, everyone, those of you who are young think you are losing your memory. But you aren't. Those of us who are older are losing our memory. And it's, a, it's whole things, whole chunks are gone. And it's very shocking. And I will tell you, about two months ago, I was reading that new book by Antonia, Lady Antonia Fraser about her marriage to Harold Pinter. And I'm kind of reading along and thinking, oh my goodness, what how interesting these people must have been. And hmm, they did that, you know, kind of going along, I got to about page 160 and discovered to my amazement that they had been to my house for dinner. <laughs> and I had no memory of it at all. None. And I had to call up my friend Richard, whom I knew in Washington in those days and said, do you have any memory of Harold Pinter coming to dinner? Well, he not only remembered, but it, Harold Pinter had had a fight with someone and had stalked out. I mean, it was an actual event at a dinner party. How often does that happen? And it just kind of began floating back, like this little hologram. I went, oh, 
right. Anyway, that's what your life is like. So who are you is one of your chapters. Right? Yes. Or, who are you? What's yes. That, what is that moment? Well, that's just the, the horrible moment at the cocktail party when you have kissed someone once or twice. <laughs> once, if, you're, if you have my way. I can't stand that those people who grew up in, on the wrong side of Hartford, Connecticut, who come at you and kiss you on both cheeks as if they're Lord George Weidenfeld or something. But anyway, you have kissed them. You are really happy to see them, and you have no idea who they are, none whatsoever. And you see your husband sort of at, you know, right there at 2 o'clock coming toward you, and you, all you can think is, please, please, please do not make me introduce this very old friend of mine to you, because I don't know who it is. You know, that thing where you're just waiting, hoping a hint will drop, where they'll say something like Wellesley to you, and you'll think, oh, okay, you know. Anyway, that's... So you have a sign with him. You have I have a, a sign with my husband, which is that if I grab him really hard on the arm, it means throw your name at this person, but he never remembers <laughs> that that is our sign. He thinks that I've just sort of over, I'm being overly, yeah, something. Violent. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in terms of the age, I mean, you really have made it okay to talk about the things that go, the things that you have to kind of, or let go of as you get older. Has that been a decision that you've made to say, I'm going to be honest? Well, I think I probably made that decision a while ago. And now I have discovered to my shock that I have horrible new things to be honest about. Um, I mean, I mean I've, I've certainly said this, but, but when I went through menopause, nobody even said that word. First of all, everyone thought, everyone felt about menopause I am not going to go through it. It's sort of like death, you know? I will be the exception to the rule. But then you are going through it. And I remember I was, I was directing Sleepless in Seattle and we were in rehearsal. And I was the oldest person in the room, which was one of those moments that is always a shock. And I realized I was taking my jacket off and putting my jacket on and taking my jacket off and putting my jacket on. And no one in the room knew why. I was the only person who knew why. But I had such a sense, nobody talked about this. And I bought a couple of books, and they were all called things like The Joy of Menopause. <laughs> and I thought, why does nobody tell the truth about this? Why is everyone saying that your golden years are your best years? And so, you know, it seemed like a logical subject for me. And one, um, of the, one of the things you mentioned is they also say your best sex is in your 60s. And yes, my theory about that is that anyone who says that their best sex is in their 60s and 70s has not had sex until their <laughs> 60s and 70s. But... <laughs> um, if we stay with this age thing for a little bit, if you will, um, the Aruba. Is My Aruba. Of, can you tell the audience oh, what the so Aruba sad. is? Well, I, there's this island in the Caribbean that you must never go to because it's really a kind of lesser island. But 
all the trees on it, they're very tiny trees because the trade winds are so strong and they're all blown sideways. And that's what I call this thing, this little hole that I have right here, which I'm sorry to say is actually, you would have to call it really, if you were being truthful, a bald spot. But I call it my Aruba because every time I go out, my hair blows sideways and it's exposed. So I now spend, this is what I do. This is what I do all the time. I'm always doing this. You know, and a I new, used to, a new habit. It's a new thing. I used to be very contemptuous of those women who twirl their hair a lot. Um, but I now have become some version of it just in case. And I, I mean, it's bad. It's a bad thing. And sometimes I find I'm passing a woman and I think, oh, she's got one. And I turn around. And there it is. And there it is, her Aruba. And you said yeah. this was along the lines of other examples of what people don't tell you about. Yes, like that you're going to get a mustache. They don't tell you that either. <laughs> they don't tell you almost anything. You talked about the, what do you, what do you call it, the stuff in your eye and oh. some of the examples, that, or spinach in your teeth. Yes. I mean, are these things you really think someone should point out when wouldn't... You know, you, you, are, you are a young woman, and you don't know what it's like when you see on the menu arugula salad and know that you cannot order it in a restaurant because it's just going to end up all over. And I don't know what that is. I can't explain why that happens so devastatingly at a certain age, but it does. Yeah. You've talked about parts of the body, yeah, um, other than your than the the space in your hair, um, but ever that started early, because in my in my reading everything Nora Ephron's ever written, I came upon um, a few words about breasts. Yes. So let's let's what ta about it? take us back to <laughs> to your breasts. Um, in, in those days, that was an Esquire piece. That was an Esquire piece, yeah, and. The idea was small breasts. You were addressing that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll move on. No, no, I mean, I wrote this piece about it, and, and um, it has been anthologized so often that I actually could have gone out and bought many pairs of breasts had I wanted to. Um, you know, it was just a piece. You know, it was just... I now look at it and I see it as a kind of I'm I'm going to I notice that a lot of writers at a certain point do something that no that no one has said that that's how they that's break how through. they break through. A lot of women in particular. Gloria Steinem did it with her Playboy Bunny piece. And, um, and when I was doing the play I did about Lillian Hellman and Mary McCarthy, I was interested that they had both done it, that, that Lillian had written The Children's Hour and no one had ever written about lesbianism on the Broadway stage. And Mary McCarthy wrote The Man in the Brooks Brothers shirt, and it was all about losing her underpants in a train, casual sex thing in the train. You know, it, and I now realize that's what I was doing. At the time, I just thought I was writing a piece about having small breasts. But I look back on it with a mixture of um, 
of uh, affection and contempt for myself. But it was groundbreaking. I mean, it's ta- it was talked about a lot, and it really, and in a way, we're probably, le- would be less shocked by it today. Oh, it, you know, a great deal of what you do turns, you know, you, I just saw the Children's Hour in London, and it's, it's hilarious to think how shocking it was at the time. I mean, when we did, when Harry met Sally, when we did the orgasm scene in When Harry Met Sally, and if any of you saw it in 1989 in the theater. Did anybody see it? But if you saw it in the theater, the women were roaring with laughter. The men were completely silent. It was... It was a revelation, that scene. There's, you know, people are so busy pushing the envelope now. You, you really have to, you know, it's, it's not easy to shock people, although I am sometimes shocked when I watch things. Like at 9 o'clock on CBS, I get shocked. But, um, but you know, there's a lot of pushing the envelope. We're going to get back to the book, but because you mentioned the orgasm scene, and I think I would be remiss not to visit it for a moment. It's kind of one of the scenes that people think about when they think about you, um, in, the, in the best sense. Tell, when I was surprised rereading how that scene came about, and I'm not sure everyone knows, so can you just Well, if that? you do, I apologize for repeating it. You know, Rob had this idea for a movie. It was really his idea that Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner had this idea that two people meet at the end of the first major relationship in each of their lives, and they make a decision, they become friends and make a decision not to have sex or it will ruin the friendship, and then they have sex and it ruins the friendship. That was the idea that Rob said to me in a meeting, and I said, yes, let's do that. And so I interviewed him, and I interviewed uh, his producer, Andy Scheinman, and they told me all this stuff about guys that I sort of kind of suspected but didn't really know, you know, just awful things about, you know, how quickly they want to go home afterwards and things like that. And then we were working on my first draft, and Rob said, well, we've told you all this stuff about Men, now you tell us something we don't know about women. And it was really, it was ugly. It was like, I dare you to tell us something we don't know. So I said, okay, women fake orgasms. And Rob said, not with me. <laughs> and, and I said, yes, yes, with you. And he said, all women, I said all women at one time or another, absolutely. And he simply did not believe it. And he went sort of storming out of his office to the windowless area at Castle Rock Pictures where they kept the women and, <laughs> and said, get in here. And this little herd of terrified assistants came into his office and he said, is it true that women fake orgasms? And they all went like this. And he was completely shocked. So we did the scene where approximately that happens. Sally says to Harry, women fake orgasms. Harry says, not with me. She says, at one time or another, everyone does. 
And it was a funny little scene. And then we had a reading with Billy, Crystal, and Meg Ryan. And at the end of the reading, Meg said, well, you know, I think the scene would be funnier if it took place in a restaurant. Because it took place like in, I don't know, in one of their houses. I can't remember. And Rob said, yeah, that would be funnier. And Meg said, and then I could have an orgasm at the end of the scene. And Rob said, yes, yes, you could do that. That would be funny. And Billy said, and then one of the customers can say, I'll have what she's having. <laughs> and Rob said, and I know just the actor to say it, my mother. And that was it. That was, you know, the moment that all of that happened. Now, I get the credit for writing. I'll have what she's having, but I didn't really. But I did write it down, and I did, <laughs> I did type it up, and um, and you did tell them that women fake orgasms. And it's because of me that they even got there. So I, uh, you know, whatever. But it was a, it was a great, it was, you know, it was one of the amazing moments for me as a screenwriter because you kind of start out as a screenwriter thinking, oh, they can't change my lines. I must stand up for my script. And then, of course, you work with people like Rob and like Billy and Meg who, who can make it funnier. And you are, you know, you would be a fool to say, don't change it. You just, you're just thrilled that, that it's going to, that it might work that it might work, you know. You said that Mike Nichols actually taught you the kind of value of using the actor as a writer, that, that often there's the, uh, an assumption that the actors and the screenwriter are kind of at odds, and that he sort of gave you a different lesson. Was that on Silkwood, and can you talk about? I don't, I don't know that that was what I learned with Mike. I feel I learned that way more with Rob. With, with Mike, what I learned about actors is that you're dead without them. I mean, that's, you know, most writers don't have a chance to see what, what Mike Nichols let me and Alice Arlen see on Silkwood, which is that we were at the auditions. And what you saw is that four actors in a row would come in and read a scene, and you would just think, oh, this is the worst writing I have ever heard. This is so horrible, I can't believe this. And then the right actor would come in and nail it, which, by the way, doesn't mean the scene sometimes didn't need work. I just mean that, that, that casting, what, what I discovered with him were, you know, was what actors are, how brilliant they are, how they change. I mean, the, the moment when we were shooting Silkwood and Meryl Streep discovered she was contaminated, she put her hands up to the monitor, and it goes off. And that's all it said in the script. She puts her hands up to the monitor, and it goes off. And she sank to the ground. And you know, I can still remember the physical memory that, you know, that I had at that moment. That thing that an actor does for a script is so remarkable. And, you know, with with funny actors, the, 
the thing, you know, you can write, you can write a scene that's funny. That's funny. That's funny. But what makes it funny is what the actor does. And, you know, the beginning of when Harry met Sally, when Meg and Billy get in the car together and instantly hate each other, and Meg take, and it's all my dialogue. It's exactly what was written. And Meg takes out her hairspray and sprays her hair. And Billy has a bunch of grapes, and he starts spitting the seeds into the window. That, those are the laughs. The other part, the audience is thinking, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> Spits it at the window. There's your laugh. And that's what the actors who are funny know how to do is to take basically to take your single and make it into a triple they 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 look at a line and they know where the word is that's funny they look at a scene and they know what prop they have to use to make the laugh work and you when you're when you become a director you try to have all the props around because props are everything in comedy. And you hope that some magical thing will happen and somebody will pick one of them up and, and you will make your script better because of all of that. But it, it's the actors who know how to do that a lot of the time. The, the script is a template for it, but it's not, it's not what really makes comedy comedy. It's always the actors. And you probably won't name names, but when it doesn't work... Oh. What, what can you do once that person is on the set and you see that the words that you wrote are not coming to life? I haven't had a whole lot of that, but, but you know, Adelia and I have this, this thing where we're constantly looking at each other and going, NF, which is the worst thing we can say about an actor, not funny. And, you know, I basically think that funny actors are the best actors, even for drama. I just think you get, you get a kind of brain with an actor who can do comedy. I mean, look at Meryl, um, who can do everything. Um, but, you know, you just have to hope when that does happen that what's there is good enough to get, you know, and you see your jokes. Oh, I mean, the sadness, the sadness of the joke that might have worked, which just sort of flies it just flies away as somebody doesn't make it work. But you try to help. You try to help. And in terms of looking at the arc of what you've done, you're clearly identified as a comedic writer and director, probably overall, even though you've done other things and clearly can. Is that, I mean, Silkwood seems in a way very um, different from everything else, but it really was in many ways the turning point. Um, can you just Talk about why you feel like maybe you haven't written another. Oh, I have. And I hope if you have 30 or $40 million, you might want to make it. <laughs> I mean, I've, really? done a, I've done a couple of serious scripts that, that people don't want to make. <gasps> you know, that's one of the saddest things about being a screenwriter are the unproduced scripts. So you literally have things in drawers that. In the closet. Not in a drawer, in a closet. Yeah, I do. Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, 
Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never, ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway or visit zabars.com for mouth-watering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. So there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. Um, in terms of making the transition to directing, you said that basically you were watching men make mistakes and figured I could get paid for this too or something like that. Well, it wasn't men. It wasn't okay. only men okay. I, I worked with. But um, when I wrote When Harry Met Sally, it crossed my mind that it was the kind of movie that was a good first picture that if if I had to direct it, I might have been able to. I wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been as good as what Rob did. But you know, it's four people. There were a lot of walls in it. I, I would really rather die than be outside while making a movie. But, um, you know, I just my life is just spent indoors. What can I say? But, um, <laughs> but, but then, after when Harry met Sally. Dawn Steele, who was running Columbia came to me and said, you should direct a movie. And she and Linda Obst found this movie about um, a woman with two kids uh, based on, it was Meg Wolitzer's book, This Is Your Life, which we changed to This Is My Life. And I didn't know who would have directed that movie if it wasn't me. There were so few women directing movies. It was, and nobody wants to direct. I would say that 98% of, 99% of men directors really don't want to direct a movie that is about women. Every so often you get an anomalous moment like Ridley Scott doing Thelma and Louise, but or Mike doing Silkwood. But basically, a director is going to spend over a year on a movie, and the sooner you can get his last divorce into the script, the better, um, so that he feels the movie is somehow autobiographical. <laughs> and um, and so, so here I was writing this movie, this script about a woman who's trying to balance having a career and kids and, you know, and lives on the Upper West Side. I mean, who's going to direct this movie? You know, the list, this was 1990-ish, 1989 when I wrote it. 1990, yeah. The, when, you, when you went to meet, after you wrote a script, you would go meet with Sam Cohn, the great agent, and he would give you a list of, called the director's list. And it was just a group of men and Lena Wertmuller. 
And um, there, there really were almost no women directing. Penny Marshall had started directing, and Barbara Streisand sometimes directed. But basically, um, you know, I just thought, well, I'll do it, you know? And in terms of it... But I didn't know anything. I, I was, so how did you do it then? I mean, how did you win I, it? Well, I don't think I did it very well, but, but it had a really... The script was good. Delia and I did a... My sister Delia and I did a script that, that had a lot of emotional power. And it didn't... The script, you know, the movie didn't make any money, but it got good reviews, and it got me to the point where I could do my second movie, which is what you hope a first movie will do for you. And that was? Sleepless in Seattle, so. And applause. No, 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 but. It's like Oprah, where they constantly applaud. That's right. Um, Sleepless in Seattle, you have talked about, was the first time that you had gone from being basically a stay-at-home mom. You were around, because you were writing, and you have these two boys, and suddenly you had to go. Well, actually, the first movie I had to okay. go also. Yes, okay. they were in a state of mild... I have to say they were shocked. They were shocked to discover I had a career. Because, you know, when you're a writer, you're home. So you know? was it... You have said that it's, it was a little bit harder than maybe you wanted to admit, or that they later told you. Oh, yes, they did. They it later told you. me many things, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I'm sure you're asked all the time. <laughs> And maybe you don't like the question, but the, the perennial inquiry about the balance between work and family, and how did you do it kind of a thing, and, and what would you tell other women who are trying to break into a business that's very male-dominated and requires that you're away, that you're really not around? You know, I mean, is that something that you wrestled with? Is it something that you, were, you felt kind of unapologetic about? Well, when I finally went off to do my first movie. The kids were, I think, 11 and 10. And I thought, well, that's, you know, more than half their childhood they have spent with, you know, basically thinking I was Barbara Bush. I mean, I, I was home at 3 o'clock every day. I, you know, I did the latkes and all of that stuff. I, so, um, I mean, at the school at the, you know, at the nursery school, Passover, Hanukkah, et cetera. I was there for all of that. So, um, so I thought, well, they'll be fine. They had a father. They had a stepfather. Um, but there's no question that, that that was a, you know, it would have been better for them if I hadn't gone. I can't. I mean, that's the truth. But I had to do it. You know, one of the things I think that that happens with women that I I've been lucky about and I think it happens with has happened with a lot of my friends is that you do have the chance to change your focus if you're lucky every x number of years or so. Almost all of my friends are doing something now that they weren't doing when they were 30. And and I think when I, you know, when my kids were first born, I stopped being a, you know, a kind of reporter 
journalist who would go off for a couple of weeks and report something. I knew I couldn't do that. That's sort of why I started writing screenplays. And then it was time for the next thing. But but I can't I can't pretend, you know, I can't pretend that it's better for your kids if you're um, if you go to Toronto for eight weeks and they come visit you a couple of times, you can't you you know, it's not true. But they they're okay. Maybe. You know? <laughs> if they aren't, it probably isn't because of that. If you know, whatever. But I can't I can't really you know, all I think everyone who has who deals with that, you know, you do a certain amount of deluding yourself and you have the best possible people taking care of them and all of that, but it's still it's still something that your kids notice. Um, and they, they definitely noticed when I left. They did. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of child-rearing generally, you've talked a lot about how your mother's philosophy was basically get over it. Yes. Um, can Everything you... is copy, she used to say. So explain went to my mother with a really sad story. I mean, if your kid comes to you with a sad story, we all know what you say. You say, oh, honey, that is so sad. I feel bad. <laughs> yes, when my mother would say, everything is copy, someday this will be funny. That's what she would say. If your heart was broken, someday this will be a funny story. And the sooner the better, because I'm not really interested in it till it is. That's what, we, that's what we grew up knowing. You wanted to get my parents' attention? Be funny. So, so did, you, did you follow I think the same it's, philosophy? It's shocking and completely counterintuitive in terms of what, what a parent really, what a parent with a heart feels. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, I'm, you know, I look at it and I think, well, it was an unbelievable survival tool for me. I'm, it's a survival tool for anyone who can, who can know that at some point... It'll be a story. And, and meanwhile, take notes, you know? So you've obviously turned one of the hardest moments into a, a, a lot of material, which is your divorce, yes. for, or one of your divorces. Um, Yes. Can you, one of your, uh, the chapters is the D word. So can you talk a little bit about how the, you talk about being defined by it on a certain level or that you, you used to be. Well, I think that when, if you are divorced from the father of your kids, I mean, you can, if you just get a divorce from someone and you don't really bump into them ever again or, or you're friends with them, you know, then it's, it's nothing. But but to be linked through the through the people you love most in the world to someone you no longer love is a very complicated thing and um and it's it's ongoing and until for many people it you know it ends finally when the kids are gone but in the meantime it you know, in that game that we sometimes play, which is write down the five things that describe who you are. Um, and those, 
five things, if you're lucky, have changed in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and, you know, at some point, mother gets in there or... or but divorced gets in there, and it's one of those five words. It, you know, it, it felt to me almost more of a defining thing than the fact that I was married again, even though that is a great thing. But, but, and I think it's true for a lot of people, which is why I said to my friend Ariana Huffington about a year ago, you, not even a year ago, seven months ago, you know, we should do a section on Huffington Post about divorce because it's such a huge fact in the lives of about half the people in this country. And it's such a spectator event with all these famous people who can't seem to stay married at all. So um, you have said that the truth is you don't always know you're getting a divorce. I think you wrote that. Uh, in heartburn, um, and it just was interesting to me that the one day the concept of, of divorce enters your head, you lean toward it, and then you lean away. The idea that it's not something you accept as an idea, and suddenly it's happening. Well, it depends on the divorce. Um, I mean, some marriages end in a kind of with a sort of nuclear bomb, um, and I certainly had one of those. But but. My first marriage was a kind of classic, should I, shouldn't I, what are the advantages, what are the, you know, list making, uh, looking at how much money I was going to need, all of that stuff. I mean, a lot of people have that. And then, and then one day they walk out for a kind of, for a reason they never expected. Um, the reason I remember walking out on my first husband was that one of my best friends had just fallen in love, and his new girlfriend moved in with him, and her apartment was empty. And I thought, well, that answers that question. Where am I going to go? You know? And the decision to write Heartburn and, and its life in terms of its success as a, as a book and as a movie, I mean, when you look back on that, is that what you think did help you come through it? Ultimately, was well, the, was the, the money work? certainly helped. I will tell you from that. those projects, from that, yeah, the success of it. Yes, but um, you know, that's just. I mean, I I knew as the marriage was ending that someday that I had a story. I knew that. I knew that I had a story that began with the discovery, the horrible discovery, and ended with the leaving. I, I knew it was six weeks long, but I didn't have any voice to write it, and I didn't think, oh, you have to sit down and write this. But then one day I started writing it as a way of not writing the thing I was supposed to be writing, which is sometimes what happens. So, and it took a while, it took quite a long time to write, because I had to keep making money Along the way. Yeah. And the recipes through it. I mean, was that because cooking was so much a part of your life? Oh, because it was the only thing I knew anything about, and I had to give the person a profession other than mine. So I made her a food writer. So. It, it struck me that one of the thing, the books that the characters fight about is Julia Child's cookbook in Heartburn. Do you remember that? 
No. <laughs> and you ended up making Julie and Julia. Yeah. Well, just so you know, the thread was there. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's good to know. Um, <laughs> in terms of marriage, though. What was the fight about? You, it was like you were dividing things. And one of the things was the, that book. Oh, who, Mastering. Who was going to get the Julia, Julia Child? Child. Oh, right. Okay. Um, can, I'll show you the page. I don't remember it because it was actually a fictional thing. Right. Yeah. Right. The whole book. Um, <laughs> in, it does, though, some of this... It's not contradictory, but it's interesting that you are very much seen as a romantic in terms of your movies and the plot lines and the endings. And, and yet, one of the things that struck me that I think resonates for some people is you say in heartburn, and I'm not going to stay too much with it, but it's almost impossible to live with someone else. Um, and that one thing I've never understood is how to work it so that when you're married, things keep happening to you. Life doesn't does tend to slow to a crawl. The idea that you, to keep that excitement is not is a challenge. So I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so what's your question? I guess where you come out on marriage and romance, personally. Oh well, I I I love being married. I do. I'm very. I love all the 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 day-to-day -day stuff about marriage. And I've written about it. I mean, you know, do we owe the Richardsons and what should we have for dinner and all of that stuff. I mean, that's... Um, and, and, but, but, you know, marriage is... Marriage... Marriage is something that if it works, you have a completely different view of it than when it's kind of not working. And I don't have like an overall view of it. I do think some people get lucky. And, um, and I don't think I'm particularly good at it, but I did finally marry somebody who was really good at it. So that makes it easier. And it, it's not easy, I don't think. Really. In, in terms of the idea, again, of just turning, using your life, because one of the things you, you've talked about is that it, it was actually hard for you to go from the journalistic kind of observer to an I voice. And obviously, it's kind of, um, there's a glut of memoir now and people using their lives, but you really were trained in a very journalistic tradition and reading your essays and I mean, your, your stories from your earlier career, what's still there now is the, is the brevity is the punchiness, is that it's, it has a sort of New York Postian feel that it was where you started. And, and I think that there's a real writing lesson in that. Can you? This is not Rupert Murdoch's New York Post right. that I started Be clear. at. Yeah. Be clear. Yeah. So yeah. Can you talk about just that, the exercise of, of learning to write that way and, and even telling stories that way? Okay, I'm not sure I understand the question, but okay. but when I went, I was hired by the New York Post really young. Um, it was in the Dolly Shift days, and I had worked on a parody of the New York Post during the 1962 newspaper strike. And um, the editors of the Post wanted to sue, and Dorothy Schiff said, don't be fools if they can parody the post they can write for it, hire them. And I was offered a tryout at the post. And I, I'm, it, it interests me how 
bad I was in the beginning and how generous they were to me. Um, they, they knew, they started me out writing really short pieces, you know, like, like 420 words. I mean, really short, triple spaced, two and a half pages. And I couldn't have written anything much longer than that. And they very slowly, well, not very slowly, but it took a year before I could write anything that was like 1,200 words long. I, I really didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to organize it. I just didn't have that thing that you eventually get, which is a kind of instinctive sense of beginning, middle, and end, which is, to me, the, the thing that I brought to screenwriting. Was, was a kind of sense about a three-act structure that I had learned as a journalist. Um, and I always remember that um, after I'd been at the Post, I don't know, five or six months, and it was really, a, it was a crazy place. I mean, I, when I started there, I was living on West 44th Street, and I got out of the subway at Times Square to go home one night at 6.20, and shots rang out, and a person fell to the ground, and I ran to a payphone and said, I'm at Times Square, someone has been shot, and the Night City editor said, we don't pay overtime. <laughs> and it, it was actually a cop who had been shot, a plainclothes detective. It was a huge story, and they sent me home. So that's, and by the way, no one was happy that he had sent me home, but that was how the Post kind of worked. But anyway, one weekend, I'm sure some of you remember the famous um, Star of India robbery at the Museum of Natural History, and three guys were arrested for for this kind of fantastic jewel robbery. And one of them was Murph the Surf, yes, thank you. And they called me up on a Sunday and they said they were all staying at this hotel on West 86th Street and um, go up there and see what you can find out. So I went to the hotel and it was, I, you know, there wasn't anything in the way of you can't get into the elevator. There were 12 floors. I got into the elevator and punched 12, figuring that if they had lived there for three months, they had tried to get a good room. And it was probably on the top. So I got off of the 12th floor. And the second doorbell I rang, I hit the jackpot. They had lived on that floor. Everyone knew them. Everyone knew what kind of pizza they liked. Um, just a huge amount of material. And I came back to the post with this notebook full of quotes and facts and one thing or another and sat down and I will, it's just a physical memory for me of not having a clue how to begin this article, how to organize it, what the lead was. I had no idea how to do it. And that thing, in those days the Post had copy paper and carbon paper between, you know, you made three, and this endless kind of thing that people always show writers doing, which is ripping the paper out of the typewriter and throwing it away. I mean, it, it was like some kind of the writer's nightmare. 
I'd never had an experience like this. And I simply couldn't write it. And at about 8 o'clock, they said, well, just leave us, you know, just leave us the information and go home. And so the next day, I came into the Post, and one of the rewrite men, one of the great rewrite men at the Post, Gene Grove, had written the piece. And I had, it was my first front page byline, me and Gene. And I read this piece, and I went, oh, that's how you write it. It was like a, you know, a writing lesson right there on the spot. And they did not fire me because they had many other people who couldn't write at the post. <laughs> and that's why they had rewrite men. And, but, but my point is that it took me a long time to learn how to do it. I was not one of those people who, who went to work someplace and, and just knocked it all out. And you've written about how just male-oriented it was, that when you even went to Newsweek, they basically said women were never going to be writers there. Can you just talk about the, the arc of that breaking through, basically? I mean, you really were doing things that women hadn't done. Well, I was really lucky because the New York Post had a lot of women. Um, it was... It, had a smaller staff than any, there were six New York papers when I went to work at the Post. The Post had the smallest staff of all, and probably the most, more women working there than at the other five newspapers combined. You know, there was the kind of sob sister era, and um, they just had lots of women, and they they didn't have any, there, there was no, um, there was no sexism in that way. If you were good, they were going to use you. And they did, you know. Um, but, but Newsweek, you know, it's, it's almost mortifying to think of the things that, that happen, you know. I mean, Jane O'Reilly wrote about this in this piece that, that was so journalistically astonishing in, in Ms. Magazine, the, the click. That, that moment where you finally go, oh, oh, I see. Um, they're discriminating against me. But, but when I came to New York, it was just sort of like you knew that's what it was going to be. You, when the man at Newsweek said to me, women aren't writers here, when I said I'd like to become a writer, and he said women don't write for Newsweek, I just thought, well, that's your opinion. You know, um, I... I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to have an argument with you about it. One of the things that was so bizarre that he said that was that there were women writers at Newsweek. Um, they were left over from World War II <laughs> when they had had to hire women because all the men were away doing the noble thing. And, and they were very good, but they were never going to make that mistake again. You know, it was, it was a real boys' club. It seems like you're not, you sort of bristle or you don't love it when people identify you as a woman director. I mean, in the sense that um, the New Yorker did this great profile, or I thought it was a fairly good profile, Ariel Levy, um, and s said that you are probably the most successful woman director in the country working now. And you said that it's a sad, that's a sad sentence in a way, or it's a. Uh, well, I don't like, I. I'm happy to, I think when you call someone a woman director, when you have this little group called the women directors, 
you're basically marginalizing what directors who are women do. Everyone who directs a movie does the same thing. Everybody works endless hours and knows what the shot is and cuts the movie and it's the job description is exactly the same. So so to me it's just a way of marginalizing it and and so I don't particularly like it at all. And what about when you're called a Jewish director? Um, no one calls me that but you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I interviewed Nora for my book, Stars of David, and um, uh, I won't spend too much time on it, but you did say that being Jewish was, would not probably rank in one of your top five, the top five that you mentioned. Can you talk about why, since we're at the JCC? Well, I... I don't mean that I could make, you know, I can certainly make an argument against myself on that because I think that, I think that what my mother taught me, um, everything is copy, someday this will be funny, is sort of a fundamental lesson of Jewish humor. Um, it's, the, you know, the, and, and when I saw, when I first saw Woody Allen perform in the 60s, you know, he would get up and tell endless stories about all the women who had been horrible to him. And by the end of 40 minutes, everyone in the room wanted to go to bed with him. I mean, if you, if you are, tell a funny story about something that happened to you, you're the hero of the story. And I think that's very, very much a kind of lesson in Jewish humor. But... Um, but I really grew up in a home where uh, my parents were anti-religious, you would have to say. Um, they really, my mother, I mean, I just had no religion whatsoever. And um, that, was, that was what they believed. And you did mention... Did I ever tell you, did I tell you the story of when I wanted to be an Episcopalian? They always said, we don't believe in anything, but if you ever decide that you want to have a religion, you can. So when I was about 11, I went to camp one summer and read Charles and Mary Lamb's Bible tales. And I became very infatuated with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I came home from camp and thought about... I knew I didn't want to be a Catholic because I'd been to Catholic church with one of my friends who was Catholic and that was just not possible. So I thought, well, the next block is the Episcopal church, so I'll be an Episcopal. So I said, I've decided to become an Episcopalian. And my parents said, why? And I said, because I believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. And they both fell on the floor laughing. <laughs> I mean, just could not stop. They thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever. So that was the absolute end of my Christianity. Um, um, but you do love Christmas. You have a, a chapter about Christmas dinner. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that just the warmth? Well, of I grew up with Christmas. You know, I grew up with a tree and... And I love Christmas trees, and I love twinkle lights, 
and I try to get them into movies even when they haven't been invented yet at the time of the movie. And, uh, you know. And can you just mention, you do mention uh, Jews or being Jewish in the JFK op-ed that you... Yes, yes, yes. In, in searching desperately for the reason why I was the only intern in the Kennedy White House that he did not make a pass at, I came up with the theory that perhaps it was because I was Jewish. But I don't really believe that. The truth is, he did have an affair with a Jewish person. Well, a couple of them. Judith Exner, for one. Was Jewish. Partly. Yeah. Um, just want to end with, um, with flops. Because you've talked about, I think you're very um, wise on the issue or the idea of failure. Um, you said, it seems to me the main thing you learn from a failure is that it's entirely possible you will have another failure. <laughs> Can you speak a little bit to the idea that we should learn something when we stumble? Well, that's what everyone always says. I mean, there's all these books about learning through failure and growth through failure. But, but really, failure is horrible. And... And it takes up, it seems to me, and by the way, this is as true of relationships as it is of, of movies or, or something you, you know, create or, you know, jobs. That, the, that thing we do of what should I have done, what could I have done differently, if I had it to do over, if only I hadn't said, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that stuff... And the movie business is particularly prone to it because it's a collaboration. And sometimes you think it was the fault of someone who came in with a bad idea and you should have said no. And sometimes you say, it's my fault because the script should have been better. Um, but, but failure takes up more space in your brain than, than hits do for everyone, for the most unbelievably successful people in in the movie business you you cannot imagine how the failures have a horrible little place and i always i always thought for a long time i thought well nobody sets out to make a, a flop no one sets out to make a bad movie no one sets out to make a flop certainly but no one sets out to make a bad movie and i always thought it would be interesting to to do a couple of panels about movies that didn't work because, because people really remember them in some terrible way. I mean, talk about selective memory. Um, but I, in, I don't really know what you learn from them. I don't, except that once you have your first failure, you think, oh, God. And, you know, some people learn the worst possible lesson you can learn, which is that they get scared. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was the late, great Nora Ephron talking to Abigail Pogerbin. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, 
share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes.